No questions from this corner. <laughs> How are we doing? Is everyone in? Okay, good. All right. So, um, as most of you, I think, know, my name is Eric Nellis, uh, staff here. Um, we are going to be talking about accidental hypothermia um, as opposed to induced hypothermia that we had actually a pretty phenomenal lecture on a few weeks ago now. Um, hopefully you were there for that. Um, but anyway, some of you may have seen a similar lecture I gave last year. Hopefully there's some interesting little twists and uh, hopefully some new stuff. Okay, <clears throat> so record lowest temperatures. Um, just to get a sense, Siberia you know, gets to 90 degrees below. Fairbanks up in Alaska, 65 below Fahrenheit we're talking about. Um, Canada, you know, 47 below, and all the way up to uh, India, Kenya, Brazil. If you don't like the cold weather, then uh, the lowest temperature recorded in, in uh, Mombasa is 61. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to have myself frozen until the Democrats regain control of Congress. So it's cute. It's, uh, <laughs> and um, for those of you who know Chuck Huss, actually, he was at the... Um, Antarctic uh, station winter over, and um, they they have what's called the 300 degree club. Basically, they they heat up the uh, the, um, the hot tub sauna to 200 degrees when the temperature outside gets to 100 degrees below uh, Fahrenheit, and so they hop in, heat up, take all the clothes off, and run around outside the station, and then hop back in. So he's a, he's an official member. Yeah, I mean, and they come in with frost nip even after they've been in the in the sauna for some time. So, uh, so yeah, it's to be avoided. But anyway, <laughs> and they're naked. Um, so you know, it was kind of an odd winter here. And for those of you who uh, you know paid much attention, weren't in the ICU all winter long. You know, January, February, we're like, what's going on? You know, but uh, I don't know if it was necessarily global warming. For those who kind of paid some attention, there's some pretty serious temperatures over in Eastern Europe and in Russia, actually. A whole bunch of people died in Moscow. And we'll kind of talk about the cross-section of the population that really had problems. But, but really, it's like the elderly, alcoholic types who fall to sleep waiting for a bus. And these, these, these folks are being kind of scooped up en masse, frozen solid in, in Moscow. It's a pretty sad state of affairs, actually. Moscow in particular, but also throughout Eastern Europe and the Ukraine. So these are some titles, some, some headlines. Okay, yeah, Shay. You know, I love the Shea t-shirts. You know, that you know, righteous such. So anyway. Um, so what is accidental hypothermia? Defined as an unintentional drop in the core temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. And, um, you know, there's some case reports of people getting pretty chilly. And, uh, and uh, actually doing pretty well, not just surviving, but actually neurologically intact. So uh, what, what kind of temperatures can people get down to? 19. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make this up. I, I, no comment. It's on the screen. It's fact, okay? So. Okay, so epidemiology a little bit. You can't have a, you know, a slide show talk without some epidemiology. 
Um, and up in the top left, this is a, a photo from, you know, some guys mountaineering and they're bivvying down for the night. That's what we think of is, you know, young, healthy people exposed to serious cold in the mountains. But, uh, but I mean, realistically, you know, this guy in the bottom right, he's at a much greater risk for actually significant morbidity and mortality from hypothermia. You know, um, alcohol plays a significant role, as we're going to get into a little bit more, um, just to kind of highlight that. So, so <clears throat> epidemiology, the blue is the males, and uh, along the bottom axis is the age group. So, so you see males have a kind of a peak earlier, um, somewhat of a drop-off, kind of plateaus off. This is deaths, United States 2002. This is CDC data. Um, and then as, as women get older and older, they, they start having increased rates as well. But if you consider the number of old women is not that great. So this is the number per 100,000. Um, but just to give you some idea of kind of the, the demographics of folks who are, who are, who are subject to, to hypothermic death. And then the death rate, in general, this is the dash, the dark line, is the death rate. And again, as you see, it's, uh, again, it's relative to the number of people. So there's a lot less people in their 70s and 80s than in their, in their 30s and 40s. And because it's per 100,000 population, you kind of have to take that into account. Is that clear? I hope so. If not, then too bad. Um, uh, Hypothermia deaths by months. Um, this is over three years, again, CDC data. And there's, there's, a, there's a fair amount of, of, of information on here. But really, it's just to highlight what I think most of us are already aware of. You know, the winter months, most people die. But that there are deaths in, in what we consider the summer months, actually, even in relatively warm regions of the country, which is kind of what we get onto here. Again, CDC data. See Iowa. Pretty, we do pretty, pretty well here, um, less than 0.5 per 100,000 um, deaths all the way up to Alaska, um, kind of hanging out there down in the southwest of California, um, <laughs> 2 to 4.6 um, per 100,000. And then the mountain states, as you may expect, also is pretty, pretty high, 1.5 to 2 per 100,000 population uh, death rates. Okay, um, kind of quick summary of the epidemiology. Urban, when it comes right down to it, the urban setting is, is, is by far the most uh, common environment. Uh, alcohol, huge risk factor, um, especially in otherwise healthy people, not necessarily in the very old and infirm that are subject to hypothermia for other reasons we're going to talk about, but, but in other, otherwise healthy people, alcohol is a, is a major risk factor. Um, elderly, um, I, I would risk, often found indoors. Again, we're going to talk maybe a little bit more about that. And um, there's underreporting, particularly in sepsis and trauma um, of hypothermia. So clinical findings, actually findings, um, but as, as you would hope, you know, the, 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 the primary symptom is the sensation of cold. So anybody who has an intact, um, you know, cutaneous and neurologic system is able to sense the cold. Uh, exhaustion and, uh, and numbness, actually. And then signs, shivering, pallor or flush, decreased extremity coordination, um, confusion, slurred speech, paradoxical undressing, when things really get to the, to the end of the spectrum, when things are really getting bad. So... Um, Decreased extremity coordination, just out, of, just out of interest. Why do you guys think that is, specifically extremity coordination? Well, the peripheral nerves are very, sens very sensitive to temperature, actually. And for any of you who spend much time outdoors, um, often you can actually lose real fine motor skills at, at 
relatively moderate temperatures, actually, and that's, that's because the nerves just are not functioning as, as, they, as they should, that window, or, or it's outside of that optimal window, temperature window. So, so you can see this pretty frequently. Mechanisms of heat loss, um, I think you probably are aware of, of, of these, basically broken down into four major categories, or five major, major categories. Evaporation from the skin. It's also evaporation from the respiratory tract. Um, radiation, conduction, convection. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of all of this, but hopefully you've kind of come across these terms before. And it's important to realize these are kind of ballpark uh, percentages, depending on the environment, depends very much on how much, how much heat you're actually losing. Um, if you're submersed in ice water, then conduction and to some degree convection account for, for the vast majority of, the, of this pie. So, um, physiological response to cold. Um, this is the, you can't really see this writing, but this is the hypothalamus, and right around here is the little nucleus called the preoptic nuclei. And, um, and then this picture up on the left, in case you don't know where this is from, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's that part of the brain. So the preoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus is, is really what is responsible for thermoregulation. Um, not just uh, physiologic, but also actually the behavioral responses, which we'll talk, uh, talk a little bit more about. Um, physiologic uh, responses, peripheral and cutaneous vasoconstriction to the cold, kind of makes sense. You're in a cold environment, your, your peripheries um, and you know, your skin in general vasoconstricts. Um, and then shivering is also uh, mediated uh, secondary to the uh, stimulus from the preoptic uh, nucleus. An increase in metabolism and heat generation about fivefold. But these can actually be overwhelmed fairly easily in cold environments. And so when it comes right down to it, the, the primary mechanism for avoiding hypothermia is really behavioral. And again, this is mediated primarily by the preoptic nucleus. And, uh, and obviously, ultimately, by the, by the frontal lobes, um, uh, but, but, but initially by, by the preoptic nucleus. Um, so we feel cold. For those of us who are aware of our envi environments, we feel cold, and it will prompt us to seek shelter, put on additional layers, um, maybe exercise. And so that's kind of an important point, actually. <clears throat> so different people have different responses or variable responses um, to exposure to cold. Some have a limited uh, capacity to produce heat. So, you know, not rocket science, but hypoglycemia, malnourished, various endocrine disorders, extremities of age. Um, some folks have decreased ability to, to regulate heat loss through, the, through various skin disorders, uh, inappropriate peripheral vasodilation, um, we come across again, and what, 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 this is you know, fairly basic. What, kind of, what, what are we talking about here? I mean, what's the classic example of hypothermia and peripheral vasodilation? Al yeah, alcohol, again, it, it's kind of another reason, as well as the behavioral, but also a physiologic reason why, why alcohol in particular um, is, is a significant risk factor. And then impaired thermoregulation. Um, again, talking about variable responses between individuals, and... Um, um, various t 
types of peripheral neuropathies um, lead to a lack of awareness of environmental conditions. So diabetes is kind of a classic example, and various other peripheral neuropathies also can impair uh, this awareness and, and thus, thus impair uh, thermoregulation. And then, so that's a peripheral impairment, a peripheral impairment. But you also have the central impairment, so impairment of the hypothalamic function, so the preoptic nuclei function. So, so anything that is going to cause significant abnormalities in the brain, obviously CVH traumas, neoplasms, various neurodegenerative disorders and, and obviously drugs. And, and this is a bit of a laundry list of common causes of hypothermia, um, dermal diseases, burns, uh, certainly near the top of the list there, drug-induced, they said, ethanol, um, also at the top of the list. What well, we primarily think about environmental immersion and non-immersion, but actually accounts for a relatively small uh, percentage of the, of the serious hypothermia. Atrogenic. Um, very common, actually, maybe not heat stroke treatment, but aggressive fluid resuscitation, but rarely leads to really profound hypothermia when it comes right down to it. Metabolic, we talked about. Neurologic, various neurologic disorders um, we also kind of touched on. Um, and then neuromuscular inefficiencies from age extremes uh, and impaired ability to, to shiver, um, lack of acclimatization, and then sepsis. So some of the physiology of, of hypothermia. What happens in the CNS system um, when we're exposed to kind of the hypothermic environment. Um, well, there's initially reduced uh, cerebral blood flow, actually secondary to the cardiovascular system, to the truth, not primarily the CNS system. Um, decreased neuronal metabolism. And there's a debate as to whether the decreased neuronal metabolism is just secondary to the fact that it's really cold and that's how um, we function, or whether this is actually a protective type of response, and it's kind of a debate that goes back and forth. But, but anyway, the bottom line is this, this, this significantly decreased neuronal metabolism, and we're going to talk about it quite a bit more. What does this lead to? It leads to confusion, irrational behavior, um, loss of coordination in various regards, and, uh, and then loss of consciousness um, in, in the mid-'80s. That's a Fahrenheit, of course. Cardiovascular physiology. Uh, initial stage of hypothermia, we're going to break down the stages in a little while, but the initial stage, have, there's actually a catecholamine surge, and, and you see hypertension, tachycardia. Um, as you progress from the, the mild to the moderate, and certainly onto the severe end of the spectrum of hypothermia, um, you see bradycardia and, uh, and hypotension. That's a natural response. Um, and then when you start getting down into the high 20s uh, Celsius, you start seeing lethal arrhythmias, uh, specifically ventricular fibrillation. Um, you see atrial arrhythmias, but they're not particularly concerning in and of themselves. If, you, if somebody has atrial fibrillation secondary to hypothermia, you warm them up, they're going to do fine. And Osborne waves. You guys come across this before? So what's the Osborne wave? That, that. <laughs> Say when. So this little nubbin right here is the EKG change that you see with hypothermia, moderate to severe hypothermia. No. This actually can be actually quite impressive. It can actually be up like this. And people have gone to cath labs and been lysed before because people think that this is an acute MI. So keep that really far in the back of your brain just in case down the road. 
Temperatures? Yeah. Um, you know, it's variable. That's a good question, but in my, you don't see it in mild hypothermia. And we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the temperatures. This is kind of more of an, an interest. I've seen one of those. Yeah, I only saw one of those too, actually. You don't see a whole lot of it. And hopefully this is not how you're diagnosing the fact of hypothermia. <laughs> oh, hey, are you cold? So we'll kind of quickly run through renal physiology. Cold-induced diuresis, kind of interesting. You guys know what this is, the idea? Thoughts from the front row? <laughs> well, what happens is... You <laughs> okay, stop. Um, so you, you, you vasoconstrict... And so eventually what you, essentially what you're doing is you're redistributing all of this blood into the core. So your, your core senses more blood and you increase the perfusion to your kidneys and you make more urine. Essentially is what cold-induced diuresis is. And you see it a lot in, when you go into the mountains, actually. So peripheral vasoconstriction increases the core volume and uh, increases the, the renal perfusion. You can develop renal failure, not that common, but you can develop it secondary to what I just talked about, volume depletion, uh, also secondary to reduced cardiac output. There's also this uh, rhabdo and acute tubular ne necrosis that may complicate the picture. Hematology, briefly, actually kind of interesting little point. Uh, these, these patients, especially in the moderate to severe hypothermia, are coagulopathic. Um, the, the, the enzymes in the coagulation cascade are, are very highly sensitive to, to the narrow window of temperatures. Um, uh, but interestingly, when you draw the blood and send it off, the, the, the coagulation studies are normal because they always heat the blood up to 37 degrees or typically will heat the blood up to 37 degrees before they actually um, before they put it in the machine that they put it into. So Anyway, it's typically self-limiting. You don't have to do anything about it, but more of interest than anything else. Um, <clears throat> three stages of hypothermia. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. Mild, um, so 91 to 95, again, below 95 is what we consider, you know, hypothermia. So 33, 36 degrees Celsius. Uh, moderate, 82 to 90, and severe below 82 degrees. There's, there's, there's kind of a lot on this slide. Um, I don't know if we need to go through all of it. Um, Kind of hit on the hit on the high the high points. I think um, even with relatively mild hypothermia, you can start developing impaired judgments, which we'll talk a little bit more about exactly why that is, and you should give a little bit of thought to why that is. Um, but you're in a, if you're in an environment where you're becoming hypothermic, impaired judgment is is really a, a real problem. It's a really a real problem. Um, increased cardiac output, as I said. Um, maybe we should cut across, actually. So basically impaired judgment, you start hallucinating, lethargy in moderate um, hypothermia, and then in severe hypothermia, you know, you're losing EEG activity, coma, loss of ocular reflexes, so you really do appear pretty much dead. Um, some tachycardia, increased cardiac output, and then progressive bradycardia as you move from the mild through to the severe. You decrease the blood pressure, cardiac output, and, and eventually ventricular fibrillation and, and, and asystole.
recipe we don't really need to go into. The renal system we talked about a little bit with cold diuresis, decreased renal perfusion. Um, this is also important, actually, uh, musculoskeletal. In mild hypothermia, there's, there's increased shivering, um, as you would expect. You start, that starts tapering off, actually, and you actually stop shivering around 32 degrees Celsius. Uh, and this is a real, I mean, this is another key temperature because when you stop shivering, you really cannot warm yourself. Um, so if you're out in the environment and you stop shivering, you're pretty much done unless you get into a warm environment, ideally into a hospital. So, um, And then in severe hypothermia, the patients appear pretty much, pretty much dead. Let's see if there's anything else interesting. That's pretty much the, the high points. So again, um, key core temperatures, um, low 90s, about 33 degrees centigrade, poor judgment, and again, I mean, key because you're in this environment, um, and, and typically uh, you need to extricate yourself, and occasionally people will come in and, and extricate you, but, uh, but typically you need to extricate yourself. I have a, a good friend of mine who I uh, actually took climbing for the first time up on Mount Washington. Um, we used to ice climb up there in the wintertime. After I moved here, he was up there. He took this friend of his up there, and, uh, and they head up this ice gully in, in the wintertime, a lovely day, and they get to the top, and this windstorm comes in, and, it, and the clouds come in, and, and they're unable to find their way down, and they end up behind this rock, and they spend about the next 14 hours behind this rock, actually. And um, in the morning, uh, there was search parties out, and they looked around, and eventually they found them, took them to the hospital, and he had a temperature of about 90 degrees. But this was, I mean, that's the point at which you're not thinking clearly. He was not getting himself out, even though the weather had actually cleared up. He was actually, and they, the search party had gone out, had done a couple of sweeps, and were actually on their way down when they saw him. So, uh, so these things, you know, happen if you get into the mountains. But, but anyway, that's, that's, that's really, that's, especially in the wilderness, that's a huge issue. Um, stopping shivering, again, key temperature, I think I've, I've explained why clearly enough. Um, lethal dysrhythmias um, below about 28 degrees Celsius, 80-odd degrees Fahrenheit. And then uh, people appear dead, 19 um, degrees Celsius, 66 degrees Fahrenheit, around there. So survival time. If this person capsizes, they don't have a wetsuit, dry suit on, what kind of time frame do they have to survive? Let's say it's 32 and a half degrees. Five minutes? That's, that's a really important point, actually. It's really interesting. Um, too bad we didn't have an, an extra hour, because Brian has a really interesting talk about submersion hypothermia issues. But I'm just going to head on the high points. Actually, you will probably survive. If you have a life jacket on, you'll survive for a while. I mean, we're talking 32 to 40 degrees. You can last an hour and a half. I mean, a lot longer than you expect. But typically, people die before that of etiologies not primarily related to the hypothermia. So you have this uncontrollable gasp. And clear water like that with a life jacket on, it's not a big deal. But if you're out in the ocean and you're in big waves and you have this, this uncontrollable gasp and you aspirate water, I mean, that can you know, be the beginning of the end for sure. Um, ventricular arrhythmias, especially older folks with coronary disease, there's such an intense catecholamine surge that it can actually put you into ventricular, various ventricular dysrhythmias. 
which is kind of interesting as well, immediately as you hit the water, or in the first minute or two. Um, Hyperventilate. These are, these are all different. These are not kind of all related. These are all different reasons why you, would, you can or may die when you immediately hit the water. Um, hyperventilation until you're unconscious. Again, if you have a, 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 um, a life preserver on, it's not as big a deal because you're going to stop hyperventilating when you become unconscious. Um, but if you don't have a life preserver on, then, then there's a good chance you, you will die of that. And then what, you, what Mike was talking about, actually, this hypothermia of the muscles. And this is a big deal because you're in this cold water. If you don't have a, a life preserver on, you have 10, maybe minutes, 15 minutes of function. And after that, you just can't swim anymore. Your core body temperature is not that cold. And your core body temperature does not drop that quickly, surprisingly. We think that it does, but it really doesn't. But this is what most people die of. So the point is, if you're ever out in cold water, if you don't have a dry suit or you don't have a wet suit, make sure you have your life preserver. That's key, because you can survive for a while in cold water. Okay. I don't, I don't think we need to go through field treatments of this stuff, actually. Um, I like this picture. So this is Yosemite. But we'll, we'll save. We've got a lot of other stuff to get through. Some days you just feel like this, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, yes, I miss you too, honey. Now put the dog on. So, <clears throat> okay. So approaches to rewarming. You've got a patient inside you. You you need to rewarm the hypothermic. So what 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 can you do about it? And I've, I think most of you have, have come across most of this material. So we'll move fairly promptly. Um, passive external rewarming. So warm environment, blankets, etc. Active external rewarming. Three types. Passive, active external rewarming. So applying anything that applies warmth to the skin. So bear huggers, warm IV bags, which on occasion you may have to be careful of because they can actually cause blistering and burn the skin. And part of the reason is, is because if you're hypothermic, you're vasoconstricted. The skin is vasoconstricted. You're not moving the blood through, moving the heat away. And so it, so it increases the likelihood that you will actually develop blisters and burns in the region, as happened just the other day um, on a patient in the emergency department. And active core rewarming, um, which is kind of the, you know, the, 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 the big dog. We'll talk more about each of these. So after drop, what is this term? Exactly, yeah. And it's not just cold, but it's often acidotic as well. So what happens, you have these vasoconstricted extremities. You put warm blankets on, you dilate, and all of a sudden, literally all of this cold blood that's in your extremities pours back into the core, and often it's acidotic. You have an irritable heart. You take that cold, acidotic blood, and it's just, it's just not the, you know, the, the best management strategy. So, so we'll, we'll talk a, a bit about how to avoid it, but that's, that's exactly what it is. So it's cold, acidotic blood from the extremities to the core may precipitate, obviously, uh, a worsening clinical state. And as a result, a lot of folks recommend only rewarming the core. So if you put a bear hugger on, just put it on the, the core part of the body, actually. <clears throat> um, this is another kind of interesting, not, not pr primarily after drop, but you have these folks who have this diuresis because of the, 
the hypothermia, you vasodilate them, you increase the essential intravascular volume, and, uh, and you may precipitate hypotension. Moderate and severe hypothermia um, management issues. So really, when it comes right down to it, so do we need to actively core rewarm this patient or do we not? So the indications for active core rewarming, temperature less than 30 degrees and not shivering. As I said, that's kind of a, a, an important distinction whether or not they can shiver and rewarm. Significant CNS dysfunction, profound cardiovascular instability, age extremes. So all, see, vague vague, pretty vague right here. So uh, it's a lot of interpretation of each of these. I'm not going to clarify them right now, maybe later. Okay, so you don't, meet the, you don't meet the criteria. You know, you can put somebody in a warm blanket in the emergency department and kind of wait for them to, to warm up of, the, of their own volition. Active external rewarming. So what is it? Direct cutaneous transfer of exogenous heat. Pretty, pretty straightforward. So on the trunk, Primarily, as I said, plus minus the extremities. Um, there are some complications, as I said, primarily this after drop issue, um, and then also the, the, the possible complicating factors of applying heat directly to this cold skin and causing various types of thermal injuries. So, AVA, arteriovenous anastomosis rewarming. You guys know what this is? I know you know what this is, so you can't answer. Not exactly. Actually, not even close. But that's a good thought. <laughs> because of this word right here. But what do you guys? So you you shunted away from appropriating people in the bullet. Not exactly. You guys do you get? I talked about this last year. Clearly nobody remembers anything. You guys weren't here, so that's okay. But uh, I, it was, obviously, it was my fault. I should have emphasized it more. But it's kind of an interesting idea. You know, you have these, these uh, anastomoses in the feet and in the palms. So the idea is if you can open up these anastomoses, you can warm up significantly more blood than you can if you apply heat to other parts of the body. That's the idea. So feet... Four, excuse me, hands, forearms, and feet in, you know, 40-some degree water. So these things open up. That's the idea. It, it warms the blood. It significantly increases the rate of rewarming in studies anyway. Some of the folks on the, on the West Coast have studied this. Um, Eric Weiss, actually, he set out in Stanford. Um, and then there's also this permutation where you apply negative pressure. And in addition, it's kind of the same idea. What this does is it kind of helps expand these arch anastomoses. It's kind of a cool idea, and some preliminary studies have shown this actually looks like it's effective, but anyway. Um, you do make sure there's no signs of frostbite or other things that would incapacitate. Well, it kind of depends on the environment. If you, I mean, you want to put frostbite in warm water. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's key, and that's kind of field, field, yeah, as far as field medicine goes, which Brian's going to definitely talk about this, but, uh, but you never want to rewarm a frostbitten extremity if they're going to get re-frostbitten. It kind of doubles the damage, actually. Okay, so, um, so let's move on. Active core rewarming. So delivery of heat directly to the core, as you may figure out. And we'll kind of run through the options. Inhalation. 
one to two and a half degrees uh, centigrade per hour if, if they're intubated, ET tube, not bad, not, not great. IV fluids, um, variable depending on how much fluid you can give patients. You don't want to give them lactated wingers. Any, any idea why? Lactate, yeah. The metabolism, hepatic metabolism is de decreased, so you don't want the buildup of, of lactate. So, um, Stomach, bladder, colon irrigation, one to three degrees uh, centigrade an hour. Peritoneal lavage, yes? You're just actually, you're, this is what the body will adjust based on those, based on those, those modalities. So what do you yes. set your... Uh, 40, 40 to 42 degrees. Okay. And I'll talk just a t uh, briefly about each of these um, as, as a little further on here. Peritoneal, peritoneal lavage may not be something to do in the emergency department, but, you know, consideration. Thoracic cavity lavage, um, you know, good, three, three to four degrees uh, Celsius per hour. And then extracorporeal, um, and, and then this is, you know, kind of the big money. I mean, one to five degrees, depending on what, um, mode, what type of, of extracorporeal rewarming, but in minutes. I mean, this is, this is really impressive and pretty amazing. Um, airway, airway rewarming, humidified um, oxygen, limits heat loss as much as anything else. You're not actually transmitting a whole lot of energy to the body, but a lot of heat is, is lost through the respiratory tract. So, uh, so it, it adds a little heat, but, uh, but as much as anything, just limits heat loss. IV fluids, 40, 42 degrees. Um, depending on how much fluid you can give somebody, uh, limits how much heat you're actually going to transfer to the, to the individual. When you, when you do that, what's going on? Uh, you know, I think when it comes down to it, this, if somebody is significantly hypothermic, this would not be a modality that you would primarily use, to, to be honest. I mean, they give you those numbers. Those are numbers that are quoted. I think it said 1 to 2.5. I'm a little skeptical, you know, actually, to tell you the truth. I think a little bit like heated, humidified air or oxygen, I think it just decreases any drop. If you're giving somebody IV fluids, you don't want to be giving them cool IV fluids. So... So, you know, I, I'm sure what you say is correct and probably depends upon the, the rate of flow and the length of the tubing and other variables. That's fairly, that's fairly, I mean, it should be fairly consistent. So, and actually, I think blood IV fluids are a lot warmer than the, the morning air, right? So, they go 120 degrees or uh, Fahrenheit. The ones that keep it warmer, at least our warmer, I guess. Engine 20. You, I mean, if you've got a known temperature, not necessarily, not necessarily. I mean, you think about trauma bays are often kept really pretty warm. Yeah, but, you know, 80, 75 to 80 degrees ambient temperatures, I don't think that's just, uh, well, that's just like 90, 90 degrees ambient temperatures, we'll, we'll chat after. Let's, let's I move. Don't want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to get bogged down too much because um, um, so options for in the emergency departments, you know, we can, we can do these, gash, this, these GI modalities. So NG tube, colonic, um, peritoneal lavage, bladder irrigation. You know, the bladder's pretty small. I can't really believe a whole lot of heat transfer, to tell you the truth. But, uh, but it's definitely part of, uh, uh, of, of your armamentarium. 
Uh, media style, we're not going to be doing, we're not going to be heating people back up with a media style lavage. I'm sorry? Well, the thing is, is that you wouldn't do it here. But if you up in, you know, these guys may end up in Alaska, up in, you know, the boonies somewhere. And there, if somebody, if it, if it comes down to it, I put a couple of chest tubes in. If you think somebody's going to die. Yeah, you want to, you, you'll want them intubated. It does come down. Cardinal lavage. I don't know if it's something you want to do in the emergency department, but uh, uh, 40, 45 degrees Celsius, infuse, infuse a couple of liters, leave it in there, 20 minutes. No, I, and I think it would be actually pretty effective. You think of the superficial vasculature in the peritoneal cavity, you would think that you would really be able to transfer some heat, actually. Um, no. No, but, but I think putting in a couple of chest tubes is also actually pretty straightforward um, when it comes down to it, which is why we kind of talked about it quickly here. Open. We're not going to op do open, but closed, meaning two chest tubes, fourth midclavicular line, sixth mid-axillary line. I really don't think it's you know, an unreasonable um, concept, especially if you're out there in the middle of nowhere. Sterile, normal saline, although some studies have actually just used warm tap water. Um, Countercurrent fluid infuser. Uh, you know, there was one, some recommendations are to avoid the left chest because you don't irritate the heart anymore. But uh, most of these people who you're being this aggressive with are actually going to be getting CPR and they're not going to have perfusing rhythms. And so you can actually do bilateral. What's that? Well, you want to warm the heart. What's going to drive this whole system? The heart and the brain. What? If your intestines are warm. Well, the thing is, is that these. These people need, it, need to be heated back up and aggressively, as we'll get to a little bit, the new AHA recommendations are really focused towards rewarming. I mean, that's the key, is rewarming the patient. Everything else doesn't do a whole lot. So options for, you know, really getting them warmed up quickly, cardiopulmonary, arteriovenous, venovenous, hemodialysis. Again, we're not primarily going to be, you know, responsible for, for placing these lines and doing these, but, uh, but it's really, I think, important to be aware of them. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of somewhat aware of the, the mechanics of how this works. You know, blood comes out of the artery, comes through the warmer, goes back into the vein. Uh, so cardiopulmonary bypass uh, rewarming indicated in hypothermic patients without a pulse if the pH is over 6.5. So if it's below 6.5, they're not going to survive. If the potassium's below 10 or 12, again, if it's above 12, these patients aren't going to survive. Core temperature at least 10 to 12 degrees Celsius or completely frozen extremity. As I said, it may increase the core temperature 2 to 5 degrees in, in a matter of minutes. So evidence, this is some really impressive evidence. Here's a couple of studies. This was New England Journal 97. 246 patients with hypothermia. 46 fit the criteria of hypothermic cardiac arrest. Um, they're pretty young, 24 plus minus 9 years. 15 survived to discharge. So third. All 15 had normal neurologic examinations before you follow up. That, that may be true, but in the spectrum of things, that's pretty good, if they're going to school at all. Here's another even more impressive study at the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery, 1990. 
11 patients in cardiopulmonary arrest, 5 were asystolic, 6 in V-fib. And these people were clinically dead, i.e. had no sign of life at all. Yeah, I mean, they had pupils that were fixed and dilated, no breathing, nothing. And the mean temperature, I mean, I mean this is really, this is impressive. Mean temperature of 71 degrees Fahrenheit. Three of them died within about 24 hours, actually. And the other eight did amazing and went back to their various professional careers. That's a, that's a good question. I think we can kind of speculate on why it would be, why it wouldn't. If Eric, Eric Dixon was here, he would love to talk about this, uh, the whole hibernation theory and how rapidly various animals are able to go from, from hypothermic states to normothermic states and, and how that relates to how well they actually survive or not. It's kind of an interesting topic. But I don't have any human data. And I, I, to tell you the truth, I just don't have a good answer for that. And the, the fact is, is that with these very aggressive rewarming techniques, people do well. People do really well. You know, there's no good talk of hypothermia or there's no mediocre talk on hypothermia without talk on botulium, um, which is kind of the drug for hypothermia, or at least it has been historically. We don't really see a whole lot of it around anymore. In a lot of hospitals, you can't even get it, but I should kind of briefly mention it. Um, there's actually some good animal studies that shows it's effective for the treatment of VFib and for prophylaxis. This is in hypothermic patients. So patients who are in VFib or patients who are very cold and you're concerned they're going to go into VFib. This is animal data. There's no good human studies. Association Hypothermia Recommendations, 2005, right from the source. So there's a question about whether you intubate or whether you don't intubate these patients, um, these unresponsive or maybe arrest. If it's a arrest patient, you're going to go ahead and intubate them. But if they're unresponsive, do you intubate them, do you not? Are you going to put them into some ventricular arrhythmia if you intubate them? And, and it's a concern, but, but the recommendation from the AHA, which is always backed up by data, is yes. Um, that was always backed up by data. Aggressive rewarming <laughs> is primary therapeutic modality, as I said. This, this, this is kind of getting back to what we were just discussing with Hans. Really being aggressive about being, getting them warmed up is, is really the recommendation. I think from, from most sources, you're going to find that that's the case. That's a, that's a damn good question that I'm going to put out to the floor to see if anybody has any good... The question is... The question is, can you give succinylcholine to intubate these patients because there is concern that their potassium levels are going to be elevated? Uh, something I've touched on, um, but the hypothermic heart is really unresponsive to the normal drugs. Um, it's unresponsive to defibrillation. We'll kind of get into the protocol for, for directly managing hypothermia here momentarily, and also unresponsive to pacing, transvenous or transcutaneous pacing. There's decreased metabolism of drugs, especially below 30 degrees centigrade. And there's been questions as to whether or not we should shock VFib. Um, the, the, rec the recommendations in this or last year's AHA uh, guidelines were to shock VFib uh, if the temperature is, what, whatever the temperature is, if they're in VFib, shock it. If there is no response, then just continue CPR until you can get them warmed up. Is that clear? That's important. This, is a, this, is, this question comes up all the time. Should we shock? Should we not shock? What should we do? You know, there's, and there's mixed data, to tell you the truth, but uh, 
I think that these guidelines are actually pretty reasonable. And then once you get the patient's core temperature above 30 degrees, uh, at least the AHA recommendations are actually amiodarone. I think with botulinum is a reasonable option. I think part of their concern was it's not available in a lot of places, actually. I mean, if it comes down to it. If I had a choice, I'd give botulinum. I think there's better data on that. But, um, but second line, I think amiodarone is reasonable. A couple of last key points. Um, so they're not dead until a warm and dead. You know, you've heard this 50 times. Um, there's been pulseless hypothermic patients who have been successfully resuscitated after six hours of CPR. Well, yes, you do. Well, part of the issue is that the brain metabolism is really so depressed that you don't need a normal blood pressure. A normal hypothermic state is a bradycardic, hypotensive state. That's normal, and that's adequate. If you start, don't stop. And this is another kind of interesting key point, kind of getting back to what I just said. Uh, actually, recommendations are not to give atropine. I mean, that's a, that's a knee-jerk reaction. If, if we see somebody hypotensive and bradycardic, first-line atropine, that's what we, we reach for. And the recommendation is actually not to give it. And it kind of makes sense, you know. As I said, bradycardia, hypo, hypotension is, is normal physiology in the hypothermic patient. Um, and you don't want to overstimulate the heart and put them in some type of fatal leg with me. Um, well, it depends on the uh, in this environment where they have a perfusing rhythm. Absolutely not. If they are in V-fib, some you'll find sources that still say go ahead give epi, but I would not. But do you understand the distinction? Right there, uh, we're talking about a perfusing rhythm. Don't give atropine because they're bradycardic. Uh, that, that, that's actually an interesting idea, but um, it really seems to me that uh, unless you are asystolic on ventricular fibrillation, you are perfusing. Again, even though you have blood pressures that really are grossly abnormal in a normal individual, you know, systolic pressures in the 60s, like this is enough to perfuse the brain that is cold, has a temperature of 28 or 30. But, but the point is, is it necessary? I mean, yeah. Because, and you know how ineffective CPR is. I mean, yeah, this is a case report. But six hours of CPR in a normal thermic patient? I mean, come on. 30 minutes of CPR. So, and you're exhausted. Okay, so a quick kind of algorithm to the hypothermic patients. Are they in cardiopulmonary arrest? Let's say no. Um, is the core body temperature greater than 32 with intact energy stores and thermoregulatory mechanisms, which we talked about before, so you all know what that is. No, it's not. So minimally invasive, active core rewarming, minimally invasive stuff, you know, put IVs on the exterior, bear hugger, et cetera. Um, if they do have, if, the, if, if they do have intact energy stores and thermoregulatory mechanisms, just passive external rewarming. So putting them in a warm environment is fine. If that's unsuccessful, then you can go to these other really minimally invasive 
pretty benign interventions. Are they in cardiopulmonary arrest? They are. Secure the airway, you know, ABCs. Um, defibrillate, ventricular fibrillation. Whether to do it once or three times, the recommendation is to do it once. Some people, you, yeah, does it make a big difference? Probably not. Um, and then initiate CPR. Glucose thiamine are actually recommended. Warm IV fluids, heated humidified oxygen. Look for and treat underlying etiologies. Um, and in some populations, you certainly want to be concerned about coexisting infections. So have a low threshold to give antibiotics in particular. And, um, and then the question is, is extracorporeal warming rapidly available? And if it is, that's what you want to do. And as, we, as the studies we just reviewed indicate, there's actually really impressive results from, from them. Um, if not, then the recommendations use as many active uh, um, core rewarming techniques as possible. And kind of reviewed the core rewarming techniques. Peritoneal lavage, you just put a. Yeah, I mean, what kind of pump? Peritoneal lavage, you just put a couple of liters into the abdomen. 